Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Overpowering Emotions, where I talk all things big emotions, emotion regulation, anxiety, everything that we need to talk about, self-regulation, emotion regulation. I'm in my comorbidity series still with anxiety, and today I'm looking at anxiety and depression, which is very common in our children and definitely in our teens, and it really interferes with daily functioning. When left untreated, of course, like anything, it can really lead to a whole host of other problems in the future. And when they have both anxiety and depression, these kiddos are at way greater impairment and their symptoms are way more severe, um, and especially those anxiety symptoms. So having depression and anxiety, it makes anxiety worse right? Way worse than if it was just anxiety alone, but not depression alone, which is really interesting. So it's a combination of depression and anxiety that's really impairing. Um, So that's something to think about. Now, they're also at greater risk for other things, relationship problems, school performance problems, later on employment problems, health problems, um, fighting with parents, suicidal ideation, just a dissatisfaction with life social withdrawal, loneliness, all of those things. So this is definitely a very important topic. Now, as you've heard me talk about with other comorbidities, there are meaningful links between anxiety and this other diagnosis um, with those diagnoses that I've already talked about, but especially with depression. Um, And with everything that I've talked about, we see the links between them, but we also see how they are their own discrete separate diagnosis. Now, anxiety and depression, it is the most common comorbidity. So when we look at depression, anxiety is the most common that goes hand in hand with it. They're kind of cousins, right? So there's a good chance if you've got a depressed kiddo, you probably already also have an anxious kiddo. Um, Anxiety is the major risk factor for developing depression in the first place. And we usually see that progression where kiddos start out with anxiety and over time it's not being treated effectively, it turns into depression. So we we definitely sort of see that. Um, I've it can happen where you develop depression without having that precursor anxiety, but it it it's it doesn't happen often. Now, just like with other comorbidities, there's similarities in the brain. So alterations in that prefrontal limbic pathways that I talk about so much that those are involved in the emotion regulation. I'm not going to go into the brain stuff because you've heard me talk a lot about that. And I've got a lot of other episodes, especially early on in, in, in this podcast where I talk a lot about the brain pieces. Developmentally, we tend to see far more anxiety in children and depression. We see them more in our teenagers, which makes sense if we see anxiety first and then it turns into depression later on. So that depression is way more prevalent in our teens and and in our adults. Um, And so it's really that progression of anxiety in childhood to depression later on. And we see those early childhood markers um, like kiddos who get really freaked out about new situations. Um, unfamiliar situations, strangers, stranger danger, right? Um, They are at way more risk for things like social anxiety and then depression later on. But in saying that, there are potentially different pathways that we see from this anxiety, depression, comorbidity. I'm not going to go into all of the models because it can be pretty complex and overwhelming. Um, There is an interaction of a lot of things that can contribute to that comorbidity as well. But I'll talk about the three sort of key pathways that are influenced by all of the different risk factors that a kiddo might face. So that can include their social or environmental factors. So teachers, 
parents, friends, family. So there's those pieces. There's also the biological and behavioral. So, you know, if you've got a kiddo avoiding everything, that's sort of the, the, the behavioral side of things. Um, there's other things that can affect how any kiddo presents, of course, genes for sure. Um, but even hormones, especially when they start to hit puberty. And we do see that in, as they go into teenage years, the serotonin levels decrease, the dopamine decreases, all the things that make us feel good. Right. And the one that's the most common in my own clinic are those kids and teens who initially start out with anxiety and then end up experiencing that depression later on when the impairments of the, that anxiety just become too much, especially as they hit high school. Now there's no more supports and they're just so overwhelmed and they never learned how to cope effectively early on. And so that's usually the, the biggest progression when I see depression in my teens, which isn't very often, to be quite honest, it's usually that anxiety. But when I see it, it's because they never learned those skills to manage the, the stress and anxiety in the first place. We see this the most in our kiddos who experience separation or social anxiety early on. And there's this real fear a lot of the time. So it happens when that anxiety, like I said, it's left untreated. Kiddos are experiencing all of these sort of anxiety related impairments along with other shared risk factors like depression. Um, so, you know, cognitive biases, confirming all of their negative beliefs about themselves, for example, and they've got this negative affect as well. Uh, oftentimes we see low self-esteem not feeling like they've got a lot of successful experiences in their life, especially in their interactions, their social interactions. We see a lot of loneliness and helplessness. So those are very similar to our depression kids, our kids who are experiencing that depression. Obviously, we're going to start feeling down, right? If we're getting to that place where we're not seeing any successes in our life, we're not having those positive social interactions, we're feeling lonely and helpless, it's hard not to feel sad. And, and, and what ends up happening is hopelessness starts to settle in. Nothing's going to change. I'm always going to be like this. We know that that's a huge predictor for depression. Uh, we see demoralization that can also start to happen where, you know, they start to perceive themselves as completely incompetent, completely unable to handle anything at all. Um, I can't receive any help at all. They just feel like failure. Right. And again, that hopelessness starts to settle in, which just directly leads to depression. So when we've got this anxiety leading to depression, we tend to see way more severe anxiety and milder depression because it was the anxiety in the first place. So the anxiety is still huge with mild depression sort of underlying because this hopelessness is starting to settle in. That depression, it's not as persistent but they're experiencing the, the anxiety and depression, it still makes everything so much harder. So we do want to make sure we're minimizing this, right? But if we can get to that anxiety early on, we can avoid a lot of those future problems. And so that's why I'm always talking about early intervention. We want to get on this. Don't think that they're going to outgrow it. We want to get on it now. Don't wait. Okay. Cause that's really important because it is harder as they, we can still work on it, but it's definitely harder once that depression starts to settle in. But there's those who struggle with both anxiety and depression at the same time. So it didn't necessarily start with anxiety that led to depression. It's not proceeding, you know, one's not proceeding the other. They just sort of showed up at the same time. So these kiddos, they have way more shared risk factors. And we tend to see this simultaneous, simultaneous 
um, co-occurrence with our generalized anxiety kiddos, because it's more about general worry, general stress, more than a specific fear, like social anxiety, for example. So something triggers them and they might feel fear and sadness at the same time. It's kind of happening at the same time. So with these kiddos, anxiety is still usually very severe, but now we're also seeing sort of moderate levels of depression. And then the third pathway are those kiddos who start out depressed in the first place, and then they become anxious because of all of the challenges that they've experienced with the low mood that they've had. So maybe they had poor social skills and they were really feeling socially isolated. I am seeing more of this with COVID, that social isolation. And so more often we see social anxiety resulting from the depressed state in the first place, or we start seeing OCD or panic sort of things starting to happen. This isn't very common. There's not a lot of research on it. Even in my own clinic, I don't see this. With COVID is the first time that I've started to see this a little bit, but usually it's still that anxiety preceding the depression. It's definitely way more common in our older teens and adults than it is in younger kids. Um, so here there's more fear, but even in the research, we're really still seeing that anxiety usually occurs before depression. And of course, you know, there's a lot of risk factors that can really influence any one of these three sort of pathways, but it's tricky because you can have different pathways that lead to the same results and you can have different risk factors that leads to different results. So it can become really complicated when we start thinking about it. So I'm not saying that just because you have an anxious kiddo that they're for sure going to be depressed, right? There's no direct causal link there. It's a combination of so many different things, the environmental, the cognitive, the genetic, you know, all of these things that are happening that can lead to depression. So I don't want to, you know, people to start worrying. It's an automatic assumption that because you're anxious, you're going to automatically be depressed once you hit adulthood. That's not true. So we got to look at things. So what's happening in their environment? Well, we want to look, has there ever been, you know, those ACEs scored, adverse childhood experiences? Have they ever experienced abuse or, or trauma? We know trauma is a definite risk factor for comorbid anxiety and depression right? These kiddos are usually way more sensitive. They're way more overreactive to any stress in their life. We can look at parenting styles because we know parental overprotection, that helicoptering parent controlling their kids is linked to anxiety. But that parental rejection, the lack of warmth, that's linked more to depression, right? So we can start looking at some of those parenting styles as well to get an idea. Again, we're not going to have 100% direct causal link, but these are things that we can start thinking about. Um, looking at the successes a kiddo might have had in their life. How do they process and interpret information? Do they experience hopelessness and helplessness? Do their nervous systems become so exhausted from the heightened fight or flight so that it just ends up shutting down? These are the kinds of questions we really want to get at to understand what's going on. All this to say, though, the purpose of this episode this episode is really to focus on the comorbidities. So when our kiddos are experiencing both depression and anxiety, 
regardless of, of what came first, because there are important implications. And I do want to talk about that. And here on, I am going to talk a little bit more about depression and suicidality in, in some of the future episodes. Um, but today, I just really want to focus more on, on sort of that thing. But we do see more generalized or social anxiety, depending on which came first. So when we avoid things that we're afraid of, we're not getting as much pleasure out of things and activities and of life, which can result then in, you know, the loss of pleasure for life, right? Or the loss of pleasure in different activities. We're just not getting a lot of joy because we're avoiding it in the first place. And so I see kids initially trying to convince me, I don't really care, Caroline. It's not a big deal if I go to that birthday party. I'm just as happy to stay at home. Really, I'm actually happier staying at home, right? They're trying to convince me or they don't want to go to the sleepover. It doesn't matter. They're telling me all the reasons why the sleepover is going to suck, right? And so they're almost training themselves to not have fun. And so now they're missing out on the opportunity to see, hey, actually, it was a lot of fun, right? And so they're missing that opportunity to see that it was fun, to hang out with friends, to do more than just hang out at home and stay in their bed all day. So that depression can really start to seep in. Um, I can really geek out on a lot of this. Um, so I will try to spare you the boredom, but there are cool things like the fact that generalized anxiety and major depressive disorder, they sort of cross predict each other more than they predict themselves a lot of the time, which is so cool to think about. How does that even make sense? Um, there are, of course, similar genetic risks between the two, for sure, right? There's there's symptom overlaps between the two, for sure. We see trouble sleeping, insomnia, right? Fatigue, um, not being able to focus, that poor attention. But we got to consider whether they're experienced differently, right? There are brain differences, though. So we still consider the anxiety and depression discrete diagnoses. They're their own thing. Um, but there is just a lot of overlap, as we see, with a lot of these comorbidities. And we need to consider, too, okay, yes, they might both be experiencing sleep problems, so insomnia, but how come, right? Is it because of the never-ending worries, worry, 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 or is it, you know, restlessness? But we do see things like restlessness and an inability to relax between anxiety and depression, too. So sometimes we can't really tease it out that that much, but it's things to think about. And we do see things like um, changes in, in appetite. That's way more unique to depression than it is anxiety, unless we're just so stressed out, we can't we can't eat. But there are some things that are really unique. Anyways, I digress, right? But there's just so many millions of things that we could talk about, and I could spend a million hours talking about all the fascinating research that's out there, looking at the complexities between the two. There's also a lot of conflicting results, too, that, that some say will say that separation anxiety leads to panic, which leads to depression, but others are saying there's no real link between separation anxiety and panic and depression. I just really think it goes to show we 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 know more but the more we know, the more we realize we don't know, and we still have so much to learn. And we really do. We're, we're learning so much more about the brain. Um, what's really common, though, that we do see is that all of the behaviors that kids engage in is usually a result of whatever is going on for them emotionally that can contribute to depression. Right. So the example that I just gave, when kids start to avoid things, they start to isolate themselves, they're withdrawing from things. Right. They, they, you know, even if it was something that they used to like and they're withdrawing, they're avoiding, whether it's perfectionism or from the anxiety, they start to argue more with the parents. So it's really that isolation that we're definitely going to see 
you know, in social anxiety, which definitely does have strong links to depression, right? So there's definitely red, I've said definitely a lot there, but there's some red flags that we want to address because that's pretty consistent in the research that we see. Now, there's also these sort of bridge symptoms too that are transdiagnostic, right? And so by targeting those, we can likely address both the anxiety and that depression, which I'm going to get into when I start talking about treatment. But that's why I like taking a transdiagnostic approach. It's not about, is it anxiety? Is it depression? Are we going to set? It's looking at what is the overarching problem that this kiddo is experiencing. That's what we're going to address, no matter what the label is. And so it's something to think about. Um, there's a lot of parental influences too, right? I've already kind of talked about the style, but how warm and accepting are parents? How supportive are they? That can really influence whether or not our kiddos are going to experience depression. Peers are important too, though. When you've got a kiddo who's always being rejected by peers, they're not having a lot of success making friendships, we see huge anxiety, right? And if they withdraw and they're not having any success, even if they're really socially motivated and they want to have friends, they're at risk for depression. It's a little bit different if they could care less, right? But, but a lot of kids are socially motivated. And how they think about the world and things that are happening, that makes a difference too. If they're only worried about being embarrassed in front of others and worried about what other people think of them, they're most likely only to experience anxiety. That's that social anxiety, right? Where we're fear, fearing um, being judged by others. So if that's their only fear, it's probably going to stay with just anxiety. But if they start thinking poorly about themselves, that they suck, that they're boring, that they're awful, those biases really start to contribute to potential depression, right? And then if they're not expressing how they feel, that's usually related to depression too. So we really need to address that piece. There's so many things to think about. So it's just picking out those seeds of, of what's going on. So it really is a matter of deep diving, really understanding this kiddo in their context. Uh, we see gender differences too. That's another consideration. Girls usually have way higher rates of comorbid anxiety and depression. And a huge risk factor for them is the fact that they tend to ruminate more, right? So clearly that's a piece that we're going to need to address, that rumination. And in addition, girls vent, girls get together, ba, 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 right? And so they tend to co-ruminate together where we're, we're talking with others who are commiserating with us and we're re-triggering and re-triggering and re-triggering whatever is the overwhelm, the stress that we're experiencing. So they're re-triggering that anxiety and depression and they're getting just entrenched and stuck with it. Um, so that's something to think about, whereas boys don't usually get into that co-rumination as much. Now, even though depression and anxiety are considered their own separate disorder, um, I did talk about some of those shared factors. I already mentioned the negative affect, um, and that includes rumination. It includes things like intolerance of uncertainty, right? Needing to have control, needing to have prediction. It's the general distress that we see and and how we think about our, our physiological arousal. You know, we see our perceived physiological arousal. It's related to both depression and anxiety, but the fight flight freeze system, it's often thought about more in anxiety. And this is 
part of our brain, right? Our, our left prefrontal cortex, it reacts to any aversive stimuli. And so our kiddos who are really more sensitive are likely going to experience that fight, flight, fear response more often. We do see it in depression as well, it, but it's more about the distress we experience in anxiety that's linked to depression than the actual fear. So that's why those physiological symptoms can become such a problem. On the other side of things, we have this behavioral activation system that responds to the positive things in our environment. And I'm going to be talking in future episodes about behavior activation. I've talked about it in the past for treatment um, of things like PDA, for example. So I'll be talking a little bit more in depth about what that is. Our ADHDers often have a very strong behavioral activation system or BAS, right? Because they're stimulated by all the fun, all of the novel things that are going on around them, right? But when someone's not picking up those positive stimuli, they're more likely to experience low mood and they're not getting the same joy out of things that they used to right? So that's something that we need to think about too. What does that behavior activation system look like for them? Um, we also see suicidal ideation in both anxiety and depression, you know, separately, which can be related to difficulties regulating emotions. It's an inability to tolerate the distress that they experience, right? And so that's why I'm always talking about, we got to build their tolerance to stress, to grief, to rejection, to disappointment. That is so huge. But it could be the content that differs between them. So we might see in both the difficulties with emotion regulation, but the content is different. And I don't like getting into content too much, but um, it's helpful just to kind of differenti differentiate between the two. So with our anxious kiddos, they have really intrusive thoughts um, about suicide, for example, but they have no intent, just for example. However, our depressed kiddos, they might have way more suicidal intent and behaviors, okay? But every kiddo is different. So we still need, again, way more research. We can't ever have any hard and fast rules. So that's some of the shared pieces that we see between anxiety and depression. So when we're looking at treatment, we need to understand that our anxiously depressed kiddos they likely experience, again, more severe impairment, so it can be harder to treat. And it's way trickier to support our kiddos in the normal way when they have both anxiety and depression. And so while understanding the pathways to depression can be helpful, it's, it's not that big of a deal. At the end of the day, though, we absolutely must know, is depression part of this kiddo's profile? Because if we're only managing the anxiety, we're probably not going to make much progress because depression can really interfere with our typical anxiety approaches. And there's a few reasons why that might be the case. One, of course, depression kills any motivation to do anything, to make any changes in their life, right? And especially if they feel hopeless and helpless and nothing is going to change anyway, so why even try? And when we do exposure, they have a way harder time processing any information and feedback and learning from the experience like we want them to. And that's a critical piece of our anxiety treatment. When we do exposure, there has to be re like processing information. They have to be learning something new. And it's so much harder if there's depression there. They're not picking up the information we're trying to lay out for them. So we really absolutely need to know if there's this underlying depression to help these kiddos. Um, I've actually seen this with a clinician I was consulting with. I, I was observing a, a session via video and they did an exposure beautifully, 
right? And so she wanted to consult with me. She's like, I don't know what went wrong, you know? So let me know what I did wrong in this exposure. She did it beautifully. So the client, there's a lot of social anxiety. The client had to go and engage socially with someone. But here's the thing. Normally, when I'm working with kiddos and with teenagers and young adults, they're coming back with so much energy. It was hard. It was embarrassing. Maybe it didn't go perfect, but they come back revitalized. I know then we're really just working with the anxiety here, but in the video, it was very obvious that client came back even more distraught than he left. And that's fine because they don't always come back, but there was no learning that that happened. And that's the problem. If we are putting them into these exposure um, situations and there's no learning, we're just making the problem worse. And so we got to be really skilled. And so that's why I have a lot of people consulting because we have to be really skilled. We can't just go and push them. Not only was there no learning, he felt terrible afterwards and he was beating himself up and he was ruminating about that interaction. And so I knew immediately, we're talking about depression here. There's depression in this guy's profile. So it was a young adult. I don't think the clinician knew that depression was even on the radar, but it was so evident after that exposure, just in terms of his reaction. That depression made it so hard for him to process the information that we hope that they will you know, process that information and to learn. So what ends up happening, they have way more negative reflections on how they did And so they're going to get stuck on any mistakes that they made. You know, they're going to misinterpret how that exposure actually went in the first place. And so they're just confirming their anxious conspiracy theory and beating themselves up that they're completely incompetent. (laughs) So this is really important. So we do see that those traditional approaches that work for anxiety might not be effective when we also have depression in the profile and we can actually be making things worse. And especially when we're talking about creating big behavioral changes and responding differently to our anxiety. And that anxiety, I mean, it doesn't interfere with depression intervention. So I think that that's important. Depression interferes, limits our success with anxiety interventions. Anxiety does not interfere with depression interventions. So why am I telling you that? Let's start with depression first. Let's start with our depression interventions first. That's where I would go first, okay? Now, with that, I do a lot of behavioral activation with my depressed youth and adults and kids than my anxious ones. And I will be talking about that in a future episode. Um, There's a lot more psychoeducation. That's so important. It's important in my anxiety work um, all the time. We're always doing psychoeducation it's not as helpful for the depression. So it's, I'm really almost immediately jumping into behavior activation before I do anything else. Whereas with anxiety, I am jumping in with exposure within the first session, but a lot of that first session is really around the psychoeducation and learning about our brain. But when I'm working with, you know, um, people who are experiencing depression, my focus shifts. And so it's just looking at what is it that I'm addressing? And I'm usually addressing the most impairing thing. And if there's depression in the way, that's definitely more impairing. So we see some strategies for sure that are helpful for both. You know, we want to change their negative self-talk. 
but that usually comes from the behaviors. I'm always talking about exposure automatically is going to reframe our thinking. And same thing with behavior activation. I'm not sitting and doing talk therapy and trying to look at the bright side and reframe our thinking. That can actually make them feel more depressed. So that's why I like the behaviors. We work on those behaviors first. And like I said, I take a transdiagnostic approach no matter what. So, you know, I don't want to work in sort of isolated silos, right? Of, of only working on depression over here in a systematic way, step one, step two, cookie cutter, right? And then anxiety here, cookie cutter. We need to look at, at and target those shared mechanisms and contribute to um, what, whatever it is that's maintaining that anxiety and maintaining that depression. But taking this all into consideration, the guidelines are essentially, let's first focus on depression if it is clinically significant, okay? And I think that that's really important um, for, for us to, to think about um, and, and making sure we're not doing sort of a cookie cutter thing. So when we look at the skills that they need to learn, because that's going to be really important. I'm still addressing, you know, the parent, adult, teacher, how are you responding when things are coming up? We don't want to create any more traps because I think, or dependency traps or, or respond in unhelpful ways, but the individual needs to learn skills too, right? And so we got to look at how do they tend to cope? We know with depression, it's really hard to problem solve. They likely are not seeking out other people for support and for help. So depending on their age and their, their ability to express themselves, we might actually see a lot more acting out behaviors over time. Now, our anxious kiddos, they usually seek out more social support. They're usually more distracted, right? They, they, they might internalize their worries more than acting out. So there's some really important implications here too. A really big one is that, you know, I hope you caught in what I just said that 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 anxious kids, they really create those dependency traps because they're usually seeking help. They want reassurance. Um, they need help. You know, all of those things. It cripples their problem solving and ability to cope. But our depressed kids usually don't seek out help for others. So we can already see this just in the differences in how they're coping, how we can adjust our approaches, right? If we're working with our, an anxious kiddo or an anxious de depressed kiddo. And so we're really getting at for our depressed kiddos, that assertiveness piece. They really need to ask for help more, right? I'm not really working on that so much with my anxious kiddos, because that's usually a problem, but when they're really depressed, you know, um, we're pushing that independence and assertiveness way more than if there was no depression. Now, if you've got a kiddo who doesn't have great social skills, um, they're avoiding social interactions, we, we definitely want to address those social skills, right? Get some social confidence under their belts, get some loops of success going. We want to make sure there's no bullying happening or anything like that before we try to expose them to social situations. But at the end of the day, when we're looking at treatment with, with anything, it doesn't matter what we're talking about. We really have to individualize our approach. And that's definitely true here. And, you know, we, we have to have flexibility when we're, we're working with any of our clients. We can't, you know, try to fit my approach in with this client and what their needs are. We got to consider, we got to be flexible based on what our clients needs, what our kiddos needs are. And that's really important for positive outcomes, whether we have an anxious kiddo or a sad kiddo. And if you're a parent, that's really important too. You can't just convince them to be happy. I'm going to tell you, I've actually done the myth of happiness in a previous episode. You can't just 
tell them to look at the bright side, right? Or let's turn these lemons into lemonades. That's really hard. That's actually going to make things worse. Conversely with the anxious kiddo, you know, we can't keep giving them reassurance and predictability. That's going to make things worse. So it's important to think about adjusting, even as a parent, being flexible based on what our kiddos' needs are. And so with the transdiagnostic approach that I'm always talking about, you're probably rolling your heads to hear me talk about it all the time, especially when they're, they're experiencing both an anxiety um, and depression at the same time, we really need to look at that. So we're going to address how they're responding to different emotions. It doesn't matter if it's worry or sadness. How are they responding to different emotions? But if we are seeing that anxiety that's contributing to that depression, we're probably good with addressing the anxiety first, right? But if it's the other way around and they're really not motivated and, and they, they don't see the point, we, we got to address that depression. Um, one thing that I mentioned in previous episodes too with those um, bridge symptoms we can target those bridge symptoms as well, right? And so those bridge symptoms are similar for both anxiety and depression. And so focusing on um, manipulating psychomotor activity. So maybe we're going to bring in some mindfulness-based approaches um, to help with the self-awareness, the emotional literacy, we're, we're doing all of that, but the behavioral activation, that's going to be really helpful. Um, we do need to consider that the effects of intervention can be delayed if we have these comorbidities. So it's just a matter of being patient. It's going to take a little bit longer for change to occur. We can't expect things to happen overnight, right? We just want to make sure we're patient and, and, and not pushing too hard, especially if there's depression in the mix. Sometimes we do have to slow things down. Now, I'm always collaborative with them because I don't want to say you can't handle it. We just got to do little baby steps, right? That's not it either. But we want to make sure that we are collaborating with them to create a plan and 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 getting down to really basic. I mean, I'll be getting into this when we talk about behavior activation, but really breaking things down that they can only find success. Even if it's the smallest thing that's so absolutely ridiculous, I don't care. As long as they're able to experience success, that's the point. So we can start making these gains. Um, I always get questions about medications. I don't really like spending too much time here. The research is really mixed. There's not strong support for medications for these kiddos. So really, that's all I want to say about medications. We know that, you know, the myth about the disrupted chemical balance, you know, the chemical imbalance in the brain that was debunked in the eighties. I don't know why we're still talking about it. Um, there's just not a lot of support. Sometimes certainly, you know, people will say if there's really severe depression, they should probably take medication so that they can just boost their motivation to get back into therapy. But, you know, when we look at the research, behavior activation is actually just as effective, even with the most severe depression. So I'm one for medications are fantastic right? For ADHD, fantastic. It actually helps support, you know, the messengers in the brain and the dopamine, the brain being able to talk with, with itself. But when it comes to anxiety and depression, it comes through living life, getting out there, getting out of our comfort zones with the anxiety and just getting back and engaging with life with the depression. So those are two really important pieces. 
Um, so this is the start of my talk about anxiety and depression. I will have a few episodes here. I've got some guest speakers that will be talking a little bit more about depression and suicidal ideation and things like that. So definitely stay tuned. This was a good intro. If you have any questions, let me know. Of course, I always have my training programs. You can check those out where I deep dive into the actual nitty gritties. And I'm here for consultation. Like if you're like, this went sideways, I don't know what's going on. Usually we can see what's going on pretty quick and, and do some tweaking. And same thing for parents too, right? I, I'm doing these things. I'm I'm trying to collaborate and I'm being supportive and I'm not doing these dependency traps, but I'm not seeing a lot of progress. Sometimes just a little tweak to what you're doing can be really helpful. Anyways, all this to say, go and have a lovely day. Go help those kiddos be bold and courageous. And I will see you next week. Mm -hmm.